0: The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We've kind of gotten away from Genesis 1 and 2. We were into chapter 3 last week, and as we continue on, we're entering uh, more into a story. So we're, we're starting to introduce characters. We're starting to introduce a little bit more plot, a little less poetry than we saw um, in the early chapters, where there wasn't quite the same narrative arc. Um, And throughout the weeks, as I've reflected on this passage, I've found it to be just a brilliant story to enter into in an imaginative way. And when I say that, I think that these portions of Scripture just open us up to enter into what we would have seen and experienced had had we been there. And it just adds a different texture than reading things in just a detached philosophical way and there's a lot here that I can say for myself personally that provokes my spirit and a lot of ways I can see myself and the darkness of my own heart but in addition to that and more importantly there's constructive ways forward in our formation in Jesus and that's what I'd like for us uh, today Uh, to look at the passage slowly and carefully to hear it in all the ways that God intends for us to hear his word, to hear it as conviction, to hear it as encouragement, as hope, as something that's real, as something that's honest, as something that we experience in our own day-to-day lives. And within that, to be able to confess our sin, to be able to open ourselves up to the generosity of God and to move forward in hope and encourage. So to do this, I'm going to be spending a majority of our time in the first 16 verses of the chapter. There's a lot happening here, naturally. And I want to center our reflections around the episode with Cain and Abel. Now the big 10,000 foot overview of this entire chapter is Cain's corrupt line. That's basically it. So it's just going to follow that family lineage. And then at the end of the chapter, it's gonna pick up with the birth of um, Adam and Eve's third child, Seth, and pick that line up. And that's what Genesis does, right? Eventually, it's gonna lay us at the doorstep of Abraham where it's gonna slow everything down, and then you're gonna have the long uh, progression of the patriarchs. But up to that point, you're having these genealogies where it just explains where things and where people uh, came from. So, I'm gonna structure the reflections today just around the questions that God asks in the passage, uh, because I think that's where God engages people in this passage. So uh, I want to focus on those questions. And we're going to walk through the rest of the passage and point out some things before we conclude. As always, there's a QA, and I think <laughs> there's almost the phone number. You, you have... 10 chances at that last digit, Uh, but you can, um, you can text questions. Uh, You can ask questions if you're here, obviously. Uh, Jacob's going to relay those questions uh, to me. If there's something that I don't hit on that you think is critical to the passage, I'd be happy to speak to that or just to stand here and think about it. Uh, And then you could all just, I mean, that's worth the price of admission, right? To watch me stand and think about it it's 07220408 0- so I'm taking that game away from you uh, it's an 8 so you could text the questions to all the numbers and just see which one hit but if you if you want to pass the time in that way so i think what we're going to see here and what my main point is today is to cultivate satisfaction to resist sin's influence so we talked about Genesis 3 last week. We saw corruption enters, enters the scene uh, with Adam and Eve. And what I'd like for us to be able to see today is the need for us to cultivate satisfaction in order to resist sin's influence. And I'm focusing around three of the questions that are asked in today's passage. The first uh, in verses one to seven is, why are you angry? The second is, where is your brother? And the final question is, what have you done? So the passage opens with a continuation of uh, what people have called the creation project, right? Sin throws creation off the rails in a certain sense, but it still keeps moving in corrupt ways. Adam and Eve were uh, charged with filling the earth and that's what happens right? They have children, they have Cain, uh, and then they have Abel. And we don't know much about them uh, other than that Abel is a keeper of sheep and that Cain is a worker of the ground. And as we progress through the passage, there's a lot that we obviously don't know. There's a lot of details that we're left to speculate on, to imagine. Um, There's no inherent critique of a worker of the ground, like we might think that that's that's negative, but it is intriguing that Abel's vocation is mentioned first, right? As the younger brother, it seems to confound expectations that the younger brother would be would be mentioned first. Um, and there's no sense of a developed sacrificial system at this point. So when Cain offers an offering, it seems a little bit weird because there's not, there's not any sort of uh, sacrificial system yet. So... What we, where that idea came from, the text doesn't say we can speculate, but we want to hold all of that with an open hand. So it opens with the birth of these children, and it rushes pretty quickly uh, toward the offering of Cain and Abel. Uh, so it's clear in the description of both offerings and the outcome that Abel's offering was better, right? And the story happens pretty quickly. Cain offers, Abel offers, and Abel's offering is clearly better and I think the text is crystal clear like I guess I haven't heard a sermon on Genesis 4 that I actually remember um but there is it always seems there's this sort of speculation around like the offering I think the text pretty clearly says like Abel offered good stuff right it's right there in the text so we don't have to speculate and and when you read some stuff they they can kind of elaborate that well Abel's offering was better for X, Y, and Z. I don't know that the text really bears that out. I think it's just pretty clear, and I'll just wear the hat of the fundamentalist for a second. Like, if the text says it, then, why? I don't, uh, the commentaries are are interesting on this stuff, but anyway, we'll pivot pretty quickly away from that. Um, Abel's offering is better because he says he offers the firstborn of his flock, And he offers their fat portions. And that's just the Bible's way of saying he offers abundance. He offers excess. Like, it's just a better offering. And I think we can infer from this, and that Cain's offering was just what he had, that Abel's in a much better spot in terms of his heart condition before the Lord. He offers the Lord the best of what he has. And for whatever reason, God preferred Abel's offering to Cain's. It doesn't really say, but again, I think we can infer that that Abel is offering the best of what he has. Which brings us to the first question. Cain's disappointed, he's angry, and God asks, why are you angry? And I'd like to drill down on this one for a bit. Uh, God's full response to Cain's anger is, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do what is right will you not be accepted and if you do not do what is right sin is crouching at the door its desire is for you but you must rule over it now i find this response of god interesting for a variety of reasons first i think that god is offering a legitimate encouragement here so in asking the question i think that God means what he says. Cain has a choice here, that even in a corrupt state, God is offering him the choice. He doesn't have to do, he doesn't have to pursue this negative path. And this is true for all of us even now, fallen but still redeemed. This is the paradox we live in. We know that we have to contend with sin crouching at the door, to use the phrase that the passage uses. We have corrupt perspectives. We have bad attitudes. We have tainted perspectives. We can sprinkle in some petty jealousy, some self-aggrandizing tendencies, and yet we don't have to succumb to these. And I don't mean to crash too hard into anybody's theology here. I don't believe that those things are inevitable in Christ. I don't think that we have to do those things. God's encouragement is for Cain to master it, which I think if we take the text at face value, he intends for Cain to do. So the first is that God is offering legitimate encouragement here. There's no sort of, in my mind, strange framework of you know, that he's, he's instructing Cain to do something that he knows that Cain can't do and it's just a, like, I don't, I don't buy into that stuff. Happy to tease that out in the questions more. Second, God doesn't force an answer out of Cain. Cain is silent. And <laughs> the scene will immediately shift to the murder of his brother. Now, what I find interesting here and troubling is that God leaves space for human beings to be who and what they are. And this goes back, at least to me, it goes back to the original, the naming of the animals. God doesn't step in and say, well, I don't know if I would call it that. There's no helicopter parenting happening here. God always leaves human beings space to be image bearers, and even if they make the wrong choice. He always gives them the chance to exercise their image bearing. And I, I find it interesting from that regard. And finally, this is the first notion of spiritual transformation in the Bible, and that's a huge category for me. Uh, human beings up to this point have never needed spiritual disciplines because they weren't fallen. Right? And that maybe they never would have needed them in their life uh, before God, pre- fall. But clearly now there's work that has to be done in mastering sin's influence. That's the reality in a fallen world. And the framework uh, would become much more specific, like as you continue through scripture and as you continue through the Christian tradition, there is um, much more explicit material on what men and women did in order to follow God faithfully, that it becomes a discipline, that the default position is not going to be to follow God faithfully. Um, In a sense, we all have to master sin. The New Testament actually does speak to this, um, that, that this is a charge to all of us, even in Christ. So I think the whole scenario just exposes Cain's jealousy, and his heart is clearly not, it seems like the understatement of the century. His heart's not in the right place. He goes out and commits the first murder that had ever happened on the planet, right? Where the idea even comes from uh, is is just astonishing. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch here to see jealousy that's at play. The offering becomes sort of the catalyst for his, his murder of his brother. And that could be speculative. And I don't have, like clearly defined, like when I say jealousy, I could also include dissatisfaction, I think anger is a part of it, like I, fear, any kind of fear-based strategy kind of leads a person uh, to this place. So um, I'd like to take a step back a little bit and look at the Bible a little bit more broadly just to just to try to make these connections just so um, maybe we see it a little bit more clearly. So as we consider Later New Testament te- texts, there's a more developed uh, sense of this connection between anger, between jealousy, uh, and even murder. Uh, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew five twenty-one to 22 which I think is on the screen, he says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So here Jesus is saying, in essence, that anger with your brother is tantamount to murder, in the same way that he says that looking lustfully is tantamount to lust itself. So this connection between uh, jealousy and anger and, and the act of murdering Uh, Jesus makes that connection, in my mind, quite clear. Even more explicit in James uh, 4, 1-3, James asks, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So what I'd like to center on here is just the impulse to jealousy. And I don't think any of us are really above homegrown petty jealousy. Like we might we might have more advanced ways of covering it up. Because uh, I think that Cain's response to God is not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, we might not actually end a person's life, literally, uh, in our jealousy. Um, But I think that our lack of satisfaction, even in benign ways, can really set us on this trajectory that Cain is on. And as we engage uh, these issues, as I mentioned, I think we can have more well-developed ways of whitewashing our jealousy uh, and kind of covering it up. Um, but the condition of the heart is the same, and I think that it's worth exploring uh, this in our life uh, before God. So I think that this brings us to the same question as Cain, where the condition is the heart, the why are you angry, right? As we engage in what I consider to be healthy self-awareness, self-reflection, I think this is a question we constantly need to come back to. Why are you angry, right? And <laughs> I ask middle schoolers if they're having a bad day, like they'll start to get a little escalated. And I, I try to be disarming because they don't expect to come in like, wow, what are you so fussy about? Like, do you need a cracker? Like, and middle schoolers are like, they just don't know how to respond. Uh, and, and usually that de-escalates or uh, it, everybody usually laughs about it. But I think the question is a good one. And I think it's one for us to keep coming back to as we reflect what are you angry about what are you upset about why is your face downcast is what is what God says to Cain and in a fallen world I think we're always going to be prone to drift we're always going to be moving in a corrupt direction like unless if you'll allow the boating analogy unless you have an oar in the water you're drifting I think that's life in a fallen world and I don't think the default Uh, position of any of us is satisfaction, but an awareness of this and how to combat it at least stems the tide, right? If we can at least have the humility to ask ourselves the question, like, what's happening in me? Why am I angry? Why am I downcast? Why am I jealous? Why am I fearful? I think that that puts us in a spot to contend with the sin uh, in our own hearts. So just a couple of questions Um, which I think are tied to the passage. If, If you feel like they're not, I'm happy to maybe clarify a little bit. One, can I rejoice in the successes and the blessings of others? Like is my default response joy over the success and blessings of my friends and even my enemies? Do I experience legitimate joy over the giftedness of my friends? Or do I respond with jealousy? Am I satisfied, am I confident, am I bold in how God has designed me, right? I don't need to experience jealousy if I know this is the life that God has given me and there's much to rejoice about. And when I added, uh, sorry to keep the middle school flavor coming, but whatever, Uh, do I know who I am and do I know what I'm about? I usually tell middle schoolers that, hey, remember who you are and remember what you're about as they leave. Um, and they all look at me with, like I have 10 heads, much the same as I'm experiencing right now. Do you know who you are and what you're about? You don't have to prove anything. to everybody. You don't have to be angry. You don't have to be fearful. In your life before God, you don't have to experience those things. And as I mentioned, and I think it's important to to continue on, satisfaction isn't going to be a default response. That's why God tells Cain, you must master it. I think that that's important and perhaps a little bit overlooked. And to go back to my earlier point, I think God means it. Like, I don't know of another way to take it. I, I think that God actually, I think he means it here. There has to be an active pursuit of satisfaction. And I think that the pursuit of those disciplines does yield greater and greater results, right? And I, I, I really love the way that Gary Thomas words this. I think it's a very helpful way to think about it. He basically says that I'm never going to be a grateful person, but I can experience gratitude and I can express gratitude. And he says it with all you know virtues and vices. I am never going to be A humble person. Does that make sense? I am never fundamentally in this fallen world going to be a humble person, but I can regularly practice humility, and I think that that's a very helpful way to think about it. And I think the more that we can discipline ourselves in these ways, I think we put ourselves on a trajectory away from this corruption and more in line with the way that God has designed us. I'm happy to tease out more specific strategies because this is actually an area of, um, I have practiced these things and I'd be happy to make some suggestions if you want those in the Q&A. But we're moving on. So the story continues. No response from Cain to God's question or his statement, but we see the answer. Sin is the master of Cain in this instance. And just imagine for a moment, I don't want to reflect too much on it because the passage doesn't, it's not graphic. There has never been the death of an image bearer on the earth at this point. And I, pardon my my lack of imagination, I just always go back to Frodo, that he's adamant that murder never happened in the Shire. That there cannot be the spilling of blood in the Shire, because once that happens, that can never be undone. And this is the human story in a lot of corrupt ways. I think even as we consider, you know, the global standing escalating in terms of tension, so many things that we've made that we wish we could unmake. And once you introduce this category of murder, it can't be undone, and it's a serious thing, and pro- perhaps a little bit more discipline needed on our part just because it's such a violent uh, culture. Um, to imagine the, the first human being thinks of en- ending the life of another human being, like that's just astonishing and grievous. The story's not graphic, but, but this sort of death enters for the first time. And this leads to our second question. Where is your brother? And I think that Cain's reply here just reveals the callousness of his own heart. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, having just orchestrated his brother's murder and introducing the category for the first time into God's good design, his only response is avoidance. The irony of Cain's question here is that the answer is yes, (laughs) you, you are your brother's keeper. Um, But he's just so callous in his heart that he just doesn't, he doesn't have, doesn't have an adequate answer. And following quickly on the heels of this is the next question, which is what have you done? In vivid terms, the Lord says that the, the very blood of Abel cries out from the ground. So Abel's murder is not just a human drama, but it affects the earth itself. And you have this almost retelling of the curse where human fallenness corrupts the earth itself. Cain is now alienated from the ground, God says. Verse uh, 11 has the sense that the ground has had to choke down Abel's blood. As a result of what Cain has has done, and because of this, he's alien. Cain is alienated from the ground; it will no longer yield its strength for Cain. God says that Cain is a fugitive and a wanderer; that he'll be placeless. Right? As I read this, I think that's I I that's the thing that I can't even imagine. Like to not have a place uh, to be put out. And to be a wanderer. So, up to this point, Cain almost has like kind of a numb quality to him. There's just no sense that he really feels anything, at least as I read it. But this is the point where Cain, in a sense, like wakes up and he starts to express some emotion. Um, He's cursed, and this finally stirs something in him. He calls out to God that the punishment is more than he can bear. Now, I would love to be able to tell you that this is a semi-happy ending to the story, but he's not repenting here, (laughs) it's self-pity. It's not not genuine repentance. Ironically, again, uh, Cain's fear is that he's going to be driven from the Lord's presence and he fears that somebody will treat him in exactly the same way that he treated his brother. That's what he's afraid of, that he is going to be a wanderer and when somebody finds him, they are going to murder him. And you can, I mean, in in somewhat sarcastic ways, you could just imagine like, oh, wouldn't that be terrible? Oh, what's murder? Oh, that's right, it's that thing that you just introduced for the first time. Not that God responds in those sarcastic and ungracious ways, but it is ironic. I also think that it's important to realize that this being driven from the Lord's presence is something that grieves him as well. His ultimate fear is death, uh, but the safety and the security of God's presence is perhaps something that he's taken for granted up to this point. And the fear of this withdrawal, it would just be a paralyzing reality for Cain. And then we have God's response. It's gracious. God's response in the same way as it was to Adam and Eve, God's response is gracious. He marks Cain gives him a tattoo, I don't know, and declares judgment on those who would attack him. And even though he's a fugitive and a wanderer, it says that Cain settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He would not ultimately be placeless. So God's response is grace, it's generosity. And I think that in and of itself is a valuable reflection. I think it's also important too to recognize that God doesn't need Cain's perfect repentance in order to be gracious. That I I think that Cain exercises self-pity here. I could be completely wrong about that. I don't see any repentance for what he's done. He's only concerned about himself, not what he's done. So I think that it introduces a category where God doesn't need all of Cain, or our motivation to be in the right place in order to show his gracious generosity. And I think maybe this should be part of our missional engagement as God's people. We don't need people to fit all of the perfect categories in order to be one of us. We can still show God's grace and compassion even uh, for people who aren't showing what we define as, as perfect motivation. So I add that as a missional category. So that's the Cain and Abel story. I'd like to skate through in our last couple minutes, uh, the remainder of the chapter, just point a couple things out. And I hope what you've seen here is that Cain, in his reaction, in his imperfect offering, in his lack of faith, is on this trajectory of anger, of jealousy, of fear, and God's response to him that sin is crouching at your door, you must master it, that there's a ton of stuff for us to reflect on in that. And I think the rest of Cain's line, I mean, the whole purpose in telling this story in Genesis is this line dead ends. The chapter is going to end with Seth, and the line to Abraham is going to continue after that. So you're going to see the same fearful, self-aggrandizing, self-exalting behavior And it's all this lack of satisfaction. It's people who, in Cain's line, had sin as master of them. So I think that that's like the 10,000-foot overview. So as we come to verse 17, the story starts to pick up steam again. Uh, We're moving a little bit faster. And this is the way that Genesis works. It just covers a bunch of ground. It'll stop to focus on a few key people. So Cain continues the charge to fill the earth by having a family of his own but it's also clear that corruption is always going to be present in that line. And I'm just, we'll just go through this and read, uh, or point out a couple examples. Um, let's see, already said that. So, the line is going to continue with Seth at the end of the chapter, but as Cain's line continues, you actually see the continuation of the creation project, and there's a couple things that are worth, uh, pointing out there. in J-Ball, you have the father of those who live in tents and who raise livestock. That's the invention of the first yurt right there in the text. They have a yurt. Everyone knows what a yurt is, right? Excellent. Good. Now, there's a perfect spot between the Grand Tetons and Yellowstone. Nice little campground. If you set up a yurt, that would be the perfect place for you uh, to, to live. <laughs> I'm trying subliminally to... I would love to live in a yurt. Um, that would be 50% of the people in my marriage that would think that living in a yurt was a great idea. I'm trying to up that percentage, but I'm, I'm not experiencing success so far. And here she could actually make the theological case like it's through the corrupt line. Living in a yurt would be, would be sin, um, which I wish I hadn't just said that. Um, so, <laughs> foil again by my own stupidity. Um, uh, yeah, so you have those, um, uh, J-Ball is the one where you have tents and raise livestock. jew you have musical instruments. I love musical instruments, that's good. Two-Ball cane. now, he, this one's kind of a bad dude. You have the forging of iron and bronze. So you, you hear the telling of the story, and what you need to hear is that the creation project continues, even in corrupt ways. Um, and I'm not saying that, that musical instruments or raising livestock or tents or or iron or bras are inherently bad. Um, It is an interesting thing, though, to reflect on that those are traced uh, through the line of Cain. If nothing else, it should offer us just a dose of humility, not in any of these things individually, in just all of our creative endeavors. We just have to be aware of how prone we are to corruption. So, the raising of livestock, living in tents, iron, bronze, musical instruments, they're not inherently bad. Human beings are always going to develop. They're always going to have something going, and in some ways it can, be, it can be corrupt. So I think the hallmark there has to be humility as we engage these creative endeavors. And I think that the corruption of Cain's line hits a high point with Lamech. This guy, man, I, if you just read it and you didn't know it was part of the Bible and you hadn't been conditioned to read it all along, just a weirdo. Um, so he's clearly a self-exalting, aggressive person. Uh, it's the first mention of taking two wives, but he's also adapting God's promise to Cain to himself. Like, this is, this is touching. Um, he says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So where God marked Cain in grace and generosity, he's got the audacity here, basically, to mark himself. Right? This just shows the corruption of the line. It just, at least me, it leaves this sense of like, uh, okay, I, there's no. I, reason necessarily for him to say this you just picture him getting up at dinner some night and like okay this is kind of bizarre it's weird at best but it's self-exalting and arrogant at its worst so that's kind of cain's line in a nutshell and that's why it it dead ends here so as we close the chapter concludes with adam and eve in the beginning of a new line with seth now, if you uh, notice at the beginning, Eve utters this phrase about, uh, depending on how you translate it, I have gotten a man, I've had a child. Here, she recognizes the generosity of God in her loss. And this is, a, at least, again, as in my imaginative reading, just picture what this tragedy is for Eve in terms of having a son having two sons, having one murder the other, and that feeling of loss. And without any of the support structures that we might have, like, she could be in the five stages of grief intuitively, and nobody even knows what those are. Like, the, just the sense that she doesn't even know how to cope with that difficulty. But here, she displays a little bit more humility than her phrase at the beginning where God has, in essence, given her another son to replace Abel. And the line continues, and the chapter ends with worship. It ends with prayer. So where Cain's line is marked with this self-exalting, self-aggrandizing way, here is the line that's continue, that continues. At the time of Enosh's birth, the text says, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, I'd love to be able to say that there's this constant upward trajectory for the rest of the Old Testament, but we know that that's not true. But Genesis pivots from the fallen line of Cain, that self-exalting, self-aggrandizing, jealous, petty, murdering line, and pivots toward a more positive, seen most clearly in people being able to call upon the name of the Lord. So just to very quickly end, and then I'll I'll take questions if there are any. I think the questions that we need to come back to are, is satisfaction at the heart of my existence? Like, am I content with the life that God has given me? Similarly, in what ways are we actively cultivating satisfaction and joy? And we can go with the questions from the text itself. Why are we angry? And one that I think is very important, where is our brother? Where is our sister? So we can be so committed to individual personal wellness that we, we might lose out on this community element here. Where is our brother? Are we our brother's keeper? The answer is yes. So I think that not only does this help to speak to the condition of our own hearts what's happening inside of us i think it also calls us out into community with other people to ask where is our brother are we serving in self uh, self self-sacrificing ways on behalf of our brothers and sisters thank you for listening to this message from king's cross church in manchester new hampshire